welcome to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines, changing the conversation around divorce. This show is sponsored by Penguin in the Room. Penguin in the Room is an award-winning arts, marketing and social media management company. If you want to jazz up your socials and have someone Instagram and tweet for you, then here's your answer. Go to www.penguinintheroom.com. As always, hit subscribe to make sure you're updated about new episodes. And we love to hear from you on social media at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. You can also email us all the infos on our website, thedivorcesocial.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I am joined by Jennifer Crichton, journalist and founder of The Flock. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Welcome to The Divorce Club. Thank you. It's a great club to be part of, I reckon. Oh, that's nice. How does it how does it make you feel that you are part of The Divorce Club? Do you know, it's weird. I think I feel less part of it now than I did when I was in the midst of it. Now it's just kind of like something that happened back then. Um but then I come and do something like this and it's like, oh, yeah, OK, there's some cool people here. This is OK. I'm good with this. So we're like reminding you yeah. by doing this that you got divorced. <laughs> That's so nice because I think a lot of people in the midst of things will um, feel a bit like, oh, my God, if there's imagine one day in the future if I forget that I'm divorced, whoa, <laughs> like that's a huge deal. So that's really nice to hear. So obviously it's not a super raw thing for you. You're not still in the midst of it. How long ago did you divorce and separate? It's been three years officially that I've been separated. Um, I think I only got the papers less than a year ago because lockdown the first lockdown happened just when they'd been signed and then the processes kind of didn't happen um for a while so it's been less than a year since I've actually had the papers but yeah I've been separated for three years officially and I think things were kind of quite uncertain for an amount of time before that so it, it feels fairly sort of solid by this stage even though 
technically speaking, I think paperwork-wise, it's not been that long. Yeah, because I was going to say, it's not a million years no. ago. You know, I speak to some people and their divorce was sort of 10 or 15 years ago. So it feels like a distant memory. So it's interesting. Why do you think you sort of forget that you're divorced, even though it was only a few years ago? I think it's just, it's not so much that I forget as it stopped being a sort of defining thing for me. I think it just, it came at such a time of upheaval in my life and there were so many things going on that it sort of was like a bit of a bonfire of the whole of my life all at once. So it's sort of, I guess when so much happens, time seems to pass very quickly. Um, yeah, I think it's just, it's so much has happened then and since then that it kind of, time is a bit, it's a bit of a brain melt, to be honest with you. I think bonfire is a great analogy for divorce. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the 5th of November and there's fireworks, but also a bonfire. Just chuck everything on it and see what happens. Um, so what happened in your divorce? Because you have a bit of a sort of interesting transatlantic story <laughs> um yeah I am um, I had been living in Dubai for just over seven years I think um and the divorce happened really quickly after we moved back to the UK um but it had kind of there had been a whole lot of stuff going on before then so I think um things really sort of started to to change I think when my son was born um so he was born in Dubai in 2013 and he was born critically ill and went into neonatal intensive care and I saw it happening with a lot of the couples in there I don't think that we were by any means unique in the sense that I was kind of the person expected to slot into that crisis caretaker role and my ex went straight back to work and carried on his career. And he, I mean, most of the couples in there were like that. But then that was kind of societally how a lot of people were living over there as well. And because Arthur was very sick and I kind of was in hospital with him for a month, I couldn't go back to my job. I sort of lost it, to be honest with you. I couldn't go back part time. So I sort of went from doing a job that I loved absolutely in magazines and, and really kind of enjoying life to just being in this sort of hell of hospitals and blood tests and scans and just horror, to be honest with you. And when Arthur was about 10 months old, he took a real turn for the worst. We thought that he was over it. We were kind of starting to get our lives back. And then he took a real turn for the worse and we thought we'd lost him. And in the end, he was transferred to Great Ormond Street. And so my ex-husband stayed in the Middle East to work and I was kind of flitting back and forth between family down in London and family up in Scotland and hospital wards. And, and Great Ormond Street, I think, is somewhere, if you've grown up in the UK, you only see it on children in need. It's not somewhere that you expect you're going to find yourself and it was just such a strange kind of introduction to parenting. And I think if you're very strong as a couple, and I saw it in people around me that that sort of thing can really, 
bond you. But I think for us, we just kind of went in very different directions in terms of the way that we dealt with it. And my ex-husband's way of finding security in that was to go and work and make money and build a nest egg and make sure we were safe financially. Whereas for me, that stuff sort of stopped mattering so much. I just wanted support around me and to be among family and friends and to feel settled. And so Dubai sort of very quickly stopped being a place that I felt okay with everything and very quickly started to just not feel like my life anymore. Wow. So I want to go back a little bit to the beginning of that, just so I can get an idea of like where you were before, you know, all of this happened with your son. And we should say your son is alive and well yeah he's um he's fantastic he's well he's clear he's got the energy of 10 sons he's um happy as can be good in case anyone was wondering (laughs) um, i'm worrying listening to that so you're you're living in dubai how long had you been married at this point and was it a joint decision for you to go and both go and live in dubai and have a life there um yeah it was sort of a we'd been married about a year I think when we moved and it was just kind of a new adventure sort of thing my ex-husband had been a bit bored in his job and so we just sort of fired off CVs and went let's see where we end up and um so we went out for his job and I went out with no job whatsoever but I think with journalism you're kind of used to being able to freelance and and I was lucky that kind of I found work really quickly and it was never somewhere I particularly would have chosen or particularly wanted to be I don't think but it it has more going for it than I think is necessarily expected in the UK it's not all just shopping malls and chandeliers um, there's some amazing culture and art and creativity and, and really welcoming people in a lot of ways. And there was a lot I enjoyed about it, that kind of your dinner table being like the UN, but the, the way of life, the human rights, all of that side of it is as bad as people say. And so that never really sat well with me. And it probably wouldn't have been somewhere that I would have ever imagined staying for so long. I just thought we were going for a short period of time to kind of have a bit of an adventure and travel, I suppose, like so many people do. But I think that's the thing about expat life is some people settle into it and could kind of stay forever and others don't really. So you were in Dubai for about seven yeah. years. How long into your marriage were you before you got pregnant? Oh, um, it would have been three years. And was the um, your son's illness when he was born, was that something you expected? No. You had, you had tests before? It was a complete, complete shock. shock. Complete surprise. Um, still to this day, we're not entirely sure what it was. It was a metabolic disorder. Um, so he had very critically low blood sugar and just used to kind of drop through the floor repeatedly. Um and it's it seems to be something that he's more or less kind of grown out of. But at the time, we didn't really know what it was. And his blood sugars were life-threateningly low a number of times. And I think when you when you don't know what it is, it's very scary anyway. But then, you know, people criticize the NHS. I think when you've lived away from it and you come back to it, you realize what an incredible thing it is. Because when you're in that sort of private system and you you don't really know the lie of the land and there aren't kind of 
record keeping and all the things that you would take for granted over here. It's a really tricky situation to navigate at the best of times without the kind of hormones of new motherhood and and all of that sort of stuff thrown into the mix and the fact that you're away from family and there's no kind of health visitors or midwife support or anything like that once you're out of hospital you're just on your own Um, and I was discharged from hospital four weeks before Arthur was so it's kind of um, it was a really difficult sort of um, emotional experience as well I think And, you know, family flew out and came out and supported, but that kind of gap in the middle, it's sort of a lot of it's a bit of a blur where you you don't really remember what's happening at all. Well, because I was going to say that sounds like so much to deal with. You know, you're in this different country, you know, you've been living there for a while, but you're away from your family and friends. It's a different healthcare system. You thought you were going in you know, joyously having a baby and going to leave with your newborn baby. And then all of a sudden your your child's in intensive care. How was that time for you? You say it's a bit of a blur, but do you remember them telling you that there was something wrong with your baby? And and how was the set? You know, were you in the room with your husband at the time? Or Yeah, I remember they came in and said that they had come in to check on him because we were aware that something wasn't quite right. And then they went back out of the room. And then when they came back in, it was obviously abundantly clear to them that something wasn't right. And everyone just left the room with the baby, just wheeled them out of the room and they all just went. And um, my ex-husband followed, everybody left. And I was just there kind of attached to a drip going, um, hi there, what, what? Oh my gosh. And I just remember screaming for someone to come and kind of take this drip out. And then that sort of, I guess that, just insistence that I was following I was going west and they were sort of going no no wait we'll get a wheelchair and I was like having none of it ran down the the corridor got into the lift it was on a different floor went down to the NICU went in and I just remember I sort of threw myself down in one of those kind of Ikea wobbly chairs and just sat down and went shit I'm not getting back out of this again (laughs) I was 24 hours past c-section I shouldn't have been running anywhere um so I just remember sort of sitting down and getting stuck in the chair and then kind of looking around and going oh right okay we're here (laughs) um and I don't think anything prepares you for neonatal intensive care or what that's like or you just don't I mean, it's like the Great Ormond Street. It's, it's something that happens to other people, I think. It's it's not something that happens to you. And so, wow. So pure adrenaline <laughs> just got your body, which shouldn't have been moving yet, to a different floor and into a chair. And then what were you faced with? Were you faced with your baby in a intensive care sort of unit or? Yeah, in one of those little kind of perspex boxes with the sticky cables stuck to him and they initially said okay his blood sugar is a bit low and um he you know we'll we'll give him some sugar and this is quite common with newborns and I sort of went oh okay right and the problem was that what they gave him it, it wasn't picking his sugars up so then they had to put a, a tube in um into his stomach and in the UK 
when all of this was happening, I would have been able to hold him. And over there, I wasn't. And once they put this tube in, then they turned around and said, oh, well, you won't be able to hold him now for as long as that tube is in. So had you held him at all by this I had point? held him um, for the first 24 hours and then he was taken in. So it was he was 24 hours, 26 hours old when he was taken in. Um, so I'd been holding him up until that point. And then he got put in this box and that was it. And I didn't hold him again for, I think, two weeks. Gosh. So where was your husband at the time in all of this? When did he, you say he threw himself into work. How soon was that? Day four, he went back to work. Um, So day four, I got discharged from hospital. Um, So it would have been day four or day five, maybe, that he went back. And he went back to work thinking he would take his days of paternity leave when we got home from the hospital um I don't think at that point anyone realized that Arthur would be in hospital for the best part of a month or that even when he was discharged there would be lots of appointments to follow up and um I you know I had to draw his blood and test his blood sugar and do heel prick tests and all of that sort of stuff every three hours um when he came home And there was just a a lot to it. And I think, you know, I I don't think anyone was trying to do anything other than their best. But I just remember feeling so incredibly vulnerable and the fact that I was in another country and it, it kind of losing your job and and all of that sort of stuff it just was like my whole identity had been kind of ripped out from under my feet and I just remember feeling incredibly angry and resentful of him getting up putting a suit on and going out every day to be him because it was kind of like how come your world is still turning and mine is just unrecognizable and it was just a, it was incredibly difficult, but I think having to advocate for my son in a foreign country and I mean, the day that they, they went to discharge him from hospital, they turned around and said, oh, your insurance company has not um, accepted the bill. So the only way that you can take him home is if you pay the bill. And the bill was, I don't, remember the exact amount but on today's translation it would be around twenty thousand pounds wow and I just remember sitting in the canteen at the hospital with my parents my ex-in-laws my ex-husband and myself sort of going okay well if we do this and do that and do the next thing because you don't have that money just in your pocket and you're being asked for it like that um so we were sort of adding up okay if we put from this account put from this account and how can we pay it and then my my ex-husband's company had stepped in and said we've paid the bill get him home we'll sort it out later and I think it became a bit of a red flag to a bull where I was just like right I'm going to get this sorted and so I just that was it it was like phone calls to the insurance company because I was absolutely determined that they were not going to get away with ticking this box that said that my son had a lifelong congenital condition because at that point we didn't know what it was and I was like no that's not happening so I just kind of poured all my energy into arguing with this insurance company until they they accepted and I think probably just took the bill to shut me up um but it just kind of took over 
my life that became what it was about and eventually once things started to return to normal and then Great Ormond Street came into the mix and it all sort of happened again and by the end of all of that I think while I completely understand my ex-husband's reaction being we could get hit with another bill we need to save we need to just be working 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 I think I came out of it kind of going, okay, well, we've just seen how quickly things can turn on a dime and how short life actually is. And it sounds very cliche, but I just kind of went, yeah, I'm not, I'm not willing to just live the the nine to five kind of being quiet and living in this place where I don't agree with these things that are going on around me and just kind of shutting up and getting on with it. It just didn't feel right anymore. It kind of, I felt a bit like I was living a lie and at that point just sort of started saying I think I would really like to go back to the UK I'd like to have support I'd like to be able to work again um and we stayed for another few years and I ended up editing a magazine had flexible working you know got a lot of things that I didn't think I would get over there and was was generally you know leading a life that I think to the outside world probably looked really great but it just I think that whole period just set me off on another path where I just kind of couldn't settle for it anymore I just needed to feel like I was more in control of my life than I felt over there it's interesting you saying about um you know ringing this insurance company and trying to sort everything out because it sounds like that was the one thing that you had control of at that time so that became your like i'm i'm can sort this out because everything else is happening around me but this is my sort of thing and we've spoken a lot about catalysts on the podcast for divorce and you know my dad dying i think was a big part of kind of my life changing and me reevaluating things and moving in a different direction from my ex. And I think it's interesting you talking about the way your ex reacted, which was obviously his way of dealing with the situation, but it wasn't necessarily what you needed at the time. And I think I had a similar thing of my ex reacted in his way of dealing with the situation, but because maybe we weren't right for each other, it wasn't the way I sort of needed him to react or the way I reacted so I think that's I think a lot of people will not necessarily be able to relate to the exact situation but relate to that sort of reaction to something impactful happening in your life and so you're still living in Dubai your son's getting healthier you're still having all these tests when did you move back to the UK and when was that breakup moment? I think after that period, we had a lot of discussions about whether things were working or not. There was a sort of mutual agreement, commitment to trying to make things work that I think a lot of people with children will relate to where it's sort of like, well, we've gotten through this, you know, we need, we owe it to him to, to make this work. But I think we just became different people. I think we were always sort of opposites attract types. And when something like that happens, if it exacerbates those differences rather than kind of works with them, 
I think we just went in such opposite directions that it became very difficult to get back to meeting in the middle, really. And so I had kind of said that I, I really felt like I, I wanted to move home and he eventually accepted that kind of that would be the case. I think he would much rather have stayed, to be honest. Um, and so we set about moving back. But I think even then it was sort of it felt like I was kind of leading the move and he was still focused on work. And then <laughs> we, um, I, I packed up all of our things and put them into shipping containers, as you do when you do an international move. And the ship crashed. <laughs> and we lost, in the end, about two thirds of what we'd shipped. But we didn't know at the time how much would be lost. So this kind of idea of coming back to make a go of it turned into we don't know if we have any belongings anymore um starting again completely literal quite a literal sort of starting again and I think again when something like that happens and you're sort of looking afresh at your life and thinking what is it that's important to me? What would I really like to get back? What can I let go? What am I not too worried about? And I think when you've lived somewhere like that, you know, you you get a lot of possessions. And I'd been working in fashion magazines, you know, I had crates and crates of clothes and everything's gone. That makes me so sad as someone who loves clothes. <laughs> like, I'm like, sofas, I'm not that bothered about. Clo- if all my clothes went down in the sea, I'd be really... Yeah really upset that's it I mean we arrived in Scotland literally with kind of three suitcases between us and all my clothes went all of them nothing came I think I got one box of jackets and that was it so how often does this happen like how often do ships (laughs) crash and sink not very often it didn't it didn't sink it crashed in the harbour into another container ship wow and a load of containers fell off there's video on youtube so you can just watch your stuff just you falling watch it. you're sort of watching going is that is that my pants is that is that one of our transformers what's that but what was hilarious is that these containers are huge so they're generally shared between households and i was moving back at the same time as a friend that i'd done a radio show with out there And the two of us had our stuff in the same container. So both of us were affected. And you're sort of going, how it's so rare that this stuff happens, but it's happened to you and someone, you know, at the same time. And it was kind of being banded about expat society as this sort of tale of the importance of insurance. Meanwhile, my friend and I are kind of having conversations going, what are you really hoping you get? What would you really not mind if you don't get? And when stuff came, a lot of the boxes had been kind of destroyed and were really soggy and stuff had just been shoved in boxes and stuff. And the very first box they brought into my kitchen, I opened and went, this isn't mine, but I know whose that is. And it was this 1960s leather jacket that belonged to my friend. And I sent her a picture and went, this is yours, right? And she's like, yes, why is it in your house? this is this is our world now this is what happens got some man called Keith's random desk supplies Keith shipped his 
I am Keith. I'm the manager little board thing that sat on his desk. And I was just like, Keith, come on, dude. Like that was supposed to be my shoes. It was devastating. I hope you kept that and you just have that in your house as a memento. (laughs) Keith, the manager. I didn't. I sent it back just in case. I I cannot fathom why that would have sentimental value, but who knows. But I think it was just like everything just happened at once and it just became this thing of there's nothing in my life now that's recognisable. I'm so obsessed with like, it's just what like you're you it's like the universe being like no 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 <laughs> maybe you're not taking these signs seriously enough so we're gonna destroy everything you own so that you completely start afresh were some shipping containers on the ship fine did they not all fall off yeah 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 yeah, yeah. there was there was only 21 fell off out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds so at first it was kind of like the odds are very much in your favor and then it was okay well we know that yours has been involved but some of it's still on the boat and so you're watching the video going is that our one there because some of them literally got torn in two and then the insurance guy said to us yeah yours is one of the ones that ended up as a convertible So when you watch the video, you can see kind of individual cardboard boxes falling out of these smashed containers and you're sort of peering at it so closely trying to work out if this is yours or not. Um, But it was just it was just the most surreal kind of I can laugh about it now. But I think it's one of those things that even now I don't really talk about it because it just sounds so far-fetched. You know, I always feel the need to say to people, it's Karachi Harbour and it was this boat and you can find the video on YouTube. Like, I'm not making this up. But (laughs) I think it just, you know, it was like, it was just one of those, as you say, it just felt like that everything was saying, this is, you need to start from scratch. You need a rethink. And, um, I I never I don't know if that's how my ex-husband saw it or not but for me it was just kind of because again we moved back he had a job he went to work I was the one dealing with the insurance you company. were at home with no clothes yeah <laughs> and I think it just it really kind of it sort of really cemented that feeling that I'd had since NICU and since the hospital that living this life of kind of gathering stuff and safeguarding and playing it safe just was becoming increasingly unimportant to me and there's no question it's it's a a horrible devastating thing to go okay you've lost all your stuff and there's still days where I kind of want to weep about a particular jacket that I no longer have or even weird things like going to put decorations on the Christmas tree and realizing that you don't have any baby's first Christmas decorations and things like that. But by and large, it was just sort of like, yeah, I don't need that. Like I've changed and this is my chance to draw the lines again and start coloring them in a new way and the way that feels right now. And I think that just was quite, individual to me and probably wasn't shared by my ex and so by the time we actually divorced or separated I think it kind of it almost just felt like the writing was on the wall a bit by that point it was like well the world's thrown everything at us to say you need to do things differently maybe I need to give that a shot 
It's so interesting because obviously I talk to people on this podcast about divorce or breakup. And, you know, a lot of the time people have had that impactful event that we talk about. But the trauma that we talk about is the divorce. Whereas I feel like you went through so much trauma even before you got there. Um, But it sounds like that you losing all your possessions whilst initially horrific was quite freeing for you. I think in some ways it was because I think um, there was that temptation when you're packing things up to hold on to every baby thing. And I think I found that newborn phase so traumatic that actually I've never really shed a tear about the fact that I didn't get the, the baby baby things much. I would like to have the odd Christmas decoration or, you know, baby grow or whatever it is. Um, But for me, it was kind of like, okay, you can leave all that behind now a little bit and sort of move on. I think I struggled a lot with that idea that we're safe now. He's When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, he's healthy. And being able to kind of start from scratch somewhere new just made it easier to sort of draw a line and go, okay, we're past that now. We can move on. Which is weird talking about it today because it's not something I've talked about a lot since then. But I think it's that's because, you know, it's kind of it's it in a weird way enabled me to sort of move on from it a bit. I want to ask how talking about it now feels. Do you feel a bit weird about it or protective of that time or? I'm aware that it's very hard to look back on it and see it from two sides. I think it took me a long time to stop feeling angry and resentful about it. Um, Because I think everybody in that situation will just deal with it the way that feels right to them. And I can see now with the benefit of distance and hindsight that my ex was probably just trying to keep us safe in the way that he knew But at the time, I just felt so abandoned that I think after that, no matter how hard we tried, I'm not sure that there was any coming back from that for me. I think I just, I had to become very self-sufficient and really build up some self-confidence that I'd been lacking. And I think once you get to that point where you feel a bit like I've, brought this kid back from the jaws of death and kept him alive and brought him to the other side of the world and now you're you know you're not gonna throw me with a parking ticket or a crashed ship or whatever it is I can do this and so it just kind of yeah I think it just changed me in a way that it's only now that I'm really starting to appreciate. Wow so you're so in the UK all of this has happened and then you separate from your husband and you but you still have this young son to look after how does that feel initially it was very very difficult um initially it was very hard i think that for me the the separation and the divorce was less difficult than getting our heads around what that looks like to be kind of co-parents and to live in the same town and you know it's I didn't move home I didn't move back to the same place I'd come from it's very near but it was a new town it was new people so you're sort of trying to establish yourself in that town and who you are and who the family is and there's you and your ex and that all happened within the course of three or four months so it was sort of like we were just getting to know people and people a lot of the people around me never knew us as a couple so I think it was more just that kind of adjustment period was very strange and kind of who's 
who's going to have Arthur on which day and how do we make this work and who's taking him to school this day and what's the balance going to look like um and yeah it was very tricky and I think that's the bit that I didn't know what that would look like and people don't really talk about it I think we've you know we spoke before about the perception of divorce as a negative and and how people talk about it as though it's a tragic thing and I don't think it always has to be a tragic thing but I think that the bit that I'd underestimated the challenge of was just figuring out how you can put aside your differences as two adults and work out a fresh way to work together and move forward with a child in the mix and doing that in a very new place was interesting (laughs) do you remember from that whole time from you know being in the neonatal unit and the clothes disappearing and all your stuff and then the separation do you remember a worst moment that you had are there any that stick out I always talk about crying on face down on my kitchen floor I think for me that's it's like you say that the trauma of the divorce was almost not as bad as the trauma of the the hospital and I think I think that was the really hard bit for me I don't think anything I'll ever go through that's not to minimize divorce in any way but I don't think that anything I'll ever go through again will be as challenging as giving birth and then feeling like you're losing your child all within 24 hours and I don't think anyone who hasn't done that can fully appreciate it and the I don't think even my ex-husband can fully appreciate what that felt like in terms of the the emotional and the physical toll of that of not being able to hold a newborn as a mother um it was it was really really tough and I think that everything since then everything has just been like well it's not as bad as that um and that's you know that's not it sounds flippant but I genuinely don't think anything will ever be as challenging as as that period was and if you were trying to explain maybe to your ex or to someone like me who hasn't had a child um what was that physical feeling like of not of being faced with you know this intensive care situation and not being able to hold your child how would you describe it if you could oh gosh I don't know it just felt incredibly unnatural I think I think you know when I was running down that corridor to get to the NICU I probably could have run through walls but afterwards you're sort of sat there just going, I am so powerless in this situation. And I, I've kind of always been someone that if I set my mind to something, I'm going to do it come hell or high water. It's not necessarily a good thing. And I couldn't do anything, you know, I couldn't, couldn't control that. There was nothing I could do to control that. And every test that they did, I would go and read everything there was to read about that thing. And then, of course, five minutes later, the results would come in saying it wasn't that and they'd be on to the next thing. And I'd be frantically trying to find out what that illness was and what that disease's survival rate was. And, you know, trying to become this kind of encyclopedia of blood sugar disorders. And at the end of the day, you can't control it. You just you can't. And so the only thing I could really do was kind of express milk 
<laughs> I just became a dairy cow. Um, and that was, yeah, it was very, very hard. Um, and to then, you know, I think a lot of us take a lot of our identity from the work that we do. And when you work in a job like I was working in, in, you know, editing magazines, a huge amount of your social life and your social time comes from the job that you do. And that all kind of that door just closed the minute because you get 45 days, calendar days, maternity. That's it. So, you know, Arthur was still in hospital when I was supposed to be back at my desk. So I think it just, I just was lost. I was completely lost. And I remember kind of just not knowing what to do with them when I got them home. I think that's the thing is the whole time that you're in NICU, you've got that hope of they're going to say, I can take them home. And then we get to go home. And then they tell you that you get to go home and you go, but hang on a minute. He, he's still got a heart monitor and an oxygen monitor and everything attached to him right now. As doctors, you think that you need that stuff on him right this minute. And in five minutes time, I'm to take him home. How, how, you know, nobody, you know, you hear parents saying that babies don't come with manuals and that's well babies. But when you're, when your baby's been hooked up to every kind of machine going, and then it's like, oh, now you can take them home. It's terrifying. And it's, it's not as though what he had was something that at the time he just needed to grow out of, or it had been cured it was just a case of, okay, he seems kind of stable now. We'll send you home and see what happens. So it just felt incredibly scary. And I didn't leave the house for a while with him because I was terrified that people would think I was harming him when I had to kind of draw blood or anything like that. And I remember eventually taking him out like over a feed time and feeding him with a bottle in a Costa coffee. And in the Middle East, the standard is that you breastfeed for two years. That's the expectation. And I was expressing milk, but he had to be fed with a bottle. And I had to add medicine and carbohydrates and stuff to his milk. So I was sort of putting powder in this bottle. And it was the first time I tried to feed him in public. And I was shaking. And I just remember this woman coming and sort of giving me a, a to do, like a telling off for the fact that I was bottle feeding. And I wanted to say, like, this is breast milk. He's been ill. This is medication. And, and I just burst into tears and went home. And I didn't feed him out of the house again for weeks and weeks and weeks. And just I just remember feeling like I'd gone from having my shit together to feeling like an absolute failure. And it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And I did a lot of therapy, but I think once you come back from that and you come around from that, it changes what you're willing to worry about and what you're willing to fear, I think. Yeah, because you hear that a lot of women are shamed for bottle feeding. Um, and I, I think a lot of people would never consider kind of your situation of like, you know, because people assume maybe that that person has decided 
to stop breastfeeding and bottle feed, which is fine anyway. But, you know, you didn't have the decision. You know, you had to because you were putting medicine in it. So I think that's just a really interesting point for anyone who's thinking of shaming any mothers, which (laughs) they shouldn't be doing anyway. But, you know, Um, and so you, you said there that you had therapy. You know, how did you recover when you were back in the UK? I mean, I had my therapy in Dubai. Um, because I, I struggled hugely with sort of anxiety and panic and, and all sorts of things after taking Arthur home. Um, so I had quite a lot of therapy then, and I think that really helped. And I think, I think that idea that a change is as good as a rest sometimes is, is quite true. I think coming home and being around family and being in a new environment and having a slightly slower kind of pace of life um, just helped me kind of get my head on straight. I think I had been sprinting a lot in Dubai, just kind of keeping going. You know, I took an editorial job as soon as I possibly could, as soon as Arthur could go into nursery and um, just kind of wanted to prove that I could still do it, I guess. And so when I came back to Scotland, I initially did a couple of um, sort of staff jobs and places and just sort of went, nah, no, I'm, I much prefer freelancing and being able to make my own time. And I just kind of gradually found my way to sort of work out where I was going to be happy, I guess. But I think being able to kind of start from scratch in this house and in this place definitely helped me because it felt like I was able to leave it behind a bit more in a way that I don't think I would have otherwise. That's interesting because I'm still in the house that I lived in with my ex. So I've like made it my own. But to begin with, yeah, I was still like, your stuff was at the bottom of the sea and I was surrounded by, you know, all of these things that we'd bought together and all of these things that hold memories. So I think we had quite a different, you know, experience in that respect. I think it's that memories thing because, I mean, we moved into this house together and we bought the, you know, the coffee table and the kitchen table and all of that stuff together but it's that kind of because we broke up really quickly after we moved and because that you know it was a new build house and it was still very very new when he moved out he's been able to kind of go and make his space elsewhere and I've been able to make my space elsewhere and I think that's not having those memories around you all the time definitely changes things I think yeah definitely and and how did you then, you know, you're getting yourself back together, Arthur's healthy. How did you then approach dating? Did you date as a newly single woman? Did you get out there or did you take some time? I did. I did. I think that is, there is a definite upside to being separated or divorced as a parent and that is that you get that break if you're co-parenting I know it's not like that for everybody but for me I have two nights a week where Arthur's with my ex and so I kind of very quickly made those nights about me and I hadn't had that for a long time and I would go out for dinner with friends and then I kind of started dating and there was a fairly hilarious period where both my ex and I were on apps and every so often would come up on each other's apps. I had that too with my ex. And it'd be like, do you swipe left or right on your (laughs) ex-husband? 
I totally had that too. And it was so awkward. I was like, oh, there he is. And also one of the pictures he was using, my ex, I had taken. And I was like, that's that's weird. Okay, cool. No, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, there was... um it's just a bizarre situation isn't it it's very very odd but I yeah I think dating was really good for me but I think it was um I kind of I I met someone quite early on that we were both kind of hot mess breakup phase and just kind of looking for some company and it was never going to be a relationship, but we got on like house on fire and both of us kind of had nights where we didn't have the kids and we would just go to concerts and go out for dinner and just hang out. And it was really nice to kind of have that meeting someone without your child being part of the picture and without your career being part of the picture and just being able to just talk as adults and he's still a friend now um and that was I think that was a really kind of healthy transition for me to kind of not go straight into hell for leather dating but to actually kind of just hang out with someone that hadn't known me through all of what had come before um and we had loads of fun it was really good fun um just sort of making new friends and going to new places and then I sort of dated a bit with the apps I dated a few more guys and then over the course of that period I had had some health treatment And I gave up drinking alcohol. I think um, I just, I was taking medication and I thought this isn't really working for me. So I stopped drinking for a couple of weeks while I was on medication and then just kind of never started again. Um, And just kind of threw myself into this whole other sort of driving into the city on my nights off to go. I went to concerts on my own. I went to galleries on my own. I just kind of really threw myself into it. having those nights off kind of going what do I like to do now what do I want to do with myself and after maybe a year or so of being separated I was kind of like okay I'm quite I'm quite good I'm I'm chilled with this I like living on my own I'm good I'm not the dating thing had kind of gotten a bit old you get to that point I think where you're seeing the same faces (laughs) over and over and you're like oh yeah I've I've swiped left on the whole of Edinburgh now Um, I've completed we'll we'll give it a rest for a little while (laughs) bumble full house let's move on um and then I was about to delete all the apps and agreed to go for a coffee with this guy who lived at the other side of Scotland and I was like well this is never going to happen because he lives away over there um but he seems cool we'll go for a coffee and now he lives with me. So that was kind of, <laughs> so yeah, that, that, was, well. that was that. But yeah, that year of, was I, maybe a year, year and a bit of dating. It was really good fun. It was really fun. Yeah, I always say how much fun I had when I was dating. And weirdly, you know, you said you met someone for company and, and it was never going to be a relationship. And that was really nice. I strangely have a friend. So, you know, it is just a friend. We've never even kissed or anything. That he split up with, you know, he's very good looking. He split up with his 
um, long-term girlfriend at the same time as I split up with my husband. And, and we sort of hung out a lot initially and still do. And like, it was just nice to have company and like, you know, people would like check us out and think we we're a couple. And that was quite nice because, you know, we look, he's very good looking. So, um, um, but, but there was none of that kind of pressure of nothing was ever going to happen. And we were just friends and we could just have, you know, all sorts of chats. And I, I remember that was really nice at that time. Um, uh, yeah, I very much enjoyed myself. So, um, and I love hearing that you're living with someone now that you met on a dating app as well, because I think people are always like, do these apps even work? So I love hearing stories of people who've ended up with people from an app because it gives you hope when you're endlessly swiping. Yeah, I think by the time I, I met Rich, I would have sworn blind that I would never meet someone on an app. I'd had a lot of fun. I didn't really have any horror stories. I mean, even the the dodgy guys, there were comedy stories to come out of it or, you know, at the very least sort of being able to peer into other people's living rooms via the the dick pics and go, oh, cool Eames chair. <laughs> nice. You know, but don't come on before, that. Before everyone was on Zoom, it was quite a, you know, that was a fun way to nosy in other people's houses. But it just kind of um it kind of got old, I think. I just sort of I had settled a bit here and made new friends and kind of would rather have gone for dinner with the girls than go out with another bloke that kind of it wasn't gonna do anything. Um, and then I sort of had started talking to Rich when I had actually been planning on deleting the app and he was sort of, he said he was doing the same. He was like, oh, I hate this. I'm going to delete this. And then I thought I'd have a quick chat with you. And it was mad, you know, from the very beginning, we just laughed a lot. And as I say, he was up in Aberdeen. I was down in Edinburgh. He doesn't have kids. And I was kind of like, yeah, it's fun to have a chat but you know he's not looking for this and there's no relationship there and then he had messaged and said he was coming to Edinburgh for a work meeting and did I want a coffee and I was sitting in this coffee shop and he walked in and it was just like oh okay right that's that's the rest (laughs) of my life then it was as instant as that it was very very strange and yeah and then he moved in at the start of lockdown and has been living here with my seven-year-old for lockdown, which is a baptism of fire for step-parenting. But yeah, it's been fantastic. I I love a happy ending. Um, (laughs) And that's so nice to hear. And I think uh, a great way to round off is to ask if you can remember a happy moment when you thought, after all of this stuff that's happened in my life, look at where I am. I'm happy. I'm okay. Do you know, it's, if you remove the first part of that, if, you know, I don't, I, I try not to sit and dwell on the past. And part of that is the fact that I don't want to raise Arthur in cotton wool. You know, I think there's an element of it being better if we try not to focus too much on on his less than brilliant start because I would never let him out of my sight but I 
very regularly now sit in my living room and kind of look at the boys being absolute idiots chucking stuff at each other and just generally being the best of pals and just think I am so incredibly lucky and I didn't think that it would be like that and I think that's the thing is when you start thinking about single parenting I think it has you know if divorce has a bad rep single parenting has an even worse one it sounds like such a terrifying thing I think there's still a real stigma about it that kind of fear of being the only single mom at the school gate or what people are going to think about the fact that your child comes from a broken home and and that sort of thing and you know Arthur has four adults in his life who love him my partner my ex has a new partner she has a daughter Arthur plays with her daughter you know I just see it as he's an incredibly lucky kid with a lot of people in his life who love him and as any parent would get to the end of lockdown and say it's a lot easier to love your kids when you've had some time away (laughs) from them um and you know when you are co-parenting you get that every single week you know we're parenting in this house five days a week but we always get two nights where we just get to be grown-ups and I think that side of the whole arrangement is often overlooked as a positive but it really isn't and I think when it doesn't necessarily come easily and there's there's definite challenges to introducing a new partner to your child but when you get to see it work it's it's amazing. It's like winning the lottery every morning when I see them eating breakfast together, you know, it's, and I think that's not something I ever could have imagined a few years ago. Oh, that's so nice. What a lovely place to finish. Thank you so much. Um, Where can people find out more about you and check out The Flock? The Flock is at flockmag.com. And we are on Instagram at join.the.flock. And um, we're posting every day on the, the news platform there. So amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, hi. Thank you for listening to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines. Please leave us a review. Please, please. Um, it would be super nice they're lovely to read they keep me cheery and happy and keep me going Uh, but also it affects our listing in the podcast charts uh, which are very important because that's how more people find the podcast and I'd love to help more people get through those really tough heartbreak and divorce times and they're more likely to find us if we're higher up on the charts so if you'd like to leave a review I'd love you forever you can leave them on iTunes is the big one or most podcast platforms do them as well I'll take all the reviews you've got to give you can also uh, get in contact on Twitter and Instagram at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. We have a website, thedivorcesocial.com, and we have a Patreon account, which means that you 
can support the podcast for as little as £2 a month. And it helps me with all the admin costs. It also means you have access to our 90 style divorce and heartbreak chat room. And there's lots of exclusives on there, little bits of audio that you don't get in the main podcast and some giveaways as well. So I'd love to see you over on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Samantha Baines. And please leave a review. Did I say that already? Please leave a review. Love you forever.